Welcome to another episode of our mini podcast, I Built a Company That Makes a Difference by B1. Here we talk to founders of sustainable businesses to get their takes on how and why they started their companies and the lessons that they've learned along the way. Today, we've got Kayla O'Connell Davis, co-founder of Subset, primary pieces for everyday living produced using environmentally responsible processes, low impact fabrics, and ethical manufacturing. Kayla, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Welcome. I have tons of questions for you. And I was on the site just before this. I absolutely love the middle minimalist style and look of all of your clothes. I really, really like it. So very interested in talking to you about how you built your business and your future plans. So thank you so much for having me. It's uh, awesome to be here. Um, yeah, Subset is uh, sort of the, the brainchild and passion project from a place of personal frustration with the fashion industry. My background was largely in apparel. I've pretty much worked every job you can in the fashion industry from like runway styling backstage to, um, you know, doing strategy and direct to retail, um, design and production and merchandising. I was a shop girl forever. I mean, I've seen every facet of of the industry and I very much um, had a little bit of a personal crisis with it and needed to reconcile my own participation in it when I sort of pulled back the iron curtain, if you will, um, in early days and realized how much detriment we were doing to the environment and the people. Um, and this was even pre Rana Plaza. Uh, but I was doing my master's at Parsons in fashion studies, and I focused my research on sustainable supply chain practices, lending from the cradle to cradle ideology and the circularity um, system in design. And uh, this was a little bit pre-circular economy concepts were coming into the mainstream. Um, so I had a hard time finding a job uh, coming out of that. I actually worked sure. for a environmental nonprofit briefly, um, aggregating the environmental data of the world's largest businesses, um, CDP. I, uh, yeah, I was doing a lot of freelance work um, in styling, and then I actually did um, find a company that was sustainably minded and was hired to launch their apparel division. Um, at the same time, we were going through an acquisition and kind of pivoted the strategy, um, focused it on home goods exclusively, but uh, and then didn't pursue apparel. Um, and so what I discovered uh, for the first time making home goods uh, was that the supply chains are pretty identical. And so I learned um, a lot about organic cotton specifically. I learned a lot about eucalyptus. I learned a lot about hard goods um, and was able to bring um, programs to a multinational um, doors, uh, such as Nordstrom, Bloomingdale's, Macy's, Bed Bath & Beyond. Um, huge learning experience. It was very much like entrepreneurship 101, but without any of the personal risk and liability. And, um, that sounds really, great, then. yeah, it was amazing. Um, and really just cut my teeth in, um, bringing eco-friendly products to a mainstream market. Um, and so after a few years of that, I, I really wanted to get back to my original goal and passion. And I had learned a lot about marketing um, eco-friendly items to the masses. And D2C was sort of on the rise. And 
um, yeah, I had decided to take the leap into entrepreneurship, called up a good friend of mine from graduate school that I met, um, who, sim- who had, you know, we had very similar work ethics and perspectives on the industry. She had uh, a background in operations and tech, um, and I also was working for a startup at the time. And so, yeah, our powers combined and kind of our, um, expertise were very complimentary. And so, yeah, we had this light bulb moment. Okay. What, you know, at the time, sustainability in fashion was very nascent. It was an incredibly limited discourse. It was very conceptual and it was very, um, niche. It was all what about, years are we talking about again? Yeah. So this was probably 2013 um, when I started that research. 2012 to 2014 is when I was doing that research primarily um, for my master's. And then um, we started the company in 2017. Um, And, you know, throughout that time, uh, the the sustainability conversation with with respect to fashion was very much focused on anti-consumption like mend, repair, reduce, um, recycle, you know, all of these things that are great and definitely, um, you know, slow fashion and there's a place for, but to me kind of coming from the side of like mass market, um, I knew that that wasn't going to penetrate the market. It wasn't going to move the needle. And I wanted to create a solution that really would. Um, and I, I also had learned that trying to change large corporations was very difficult. You know, they kind of had their tried and true models. They had their margins. And when you when you build a business on, um, you know, these overseas vendors that give you really great margins and it's really hard to change them to buying something that's more expensive, um, investing in fair labor practices that are, are also more expensive, but are, you know, the, the wages that people deserve. Um, and so I figured we got to start this business sustainably from the start. Um, and so with subset, we're focused on high frequency basics that impact people every single day. If you, you know, everybody wears underwear, not everybody is going to wear an artisan handcrafted shirt um, that is in this beautiful print that was made by this woman in Kenya, which is an amazing story. And we, I, I want you to buy that shirt as well. Um, but everybody typically wears underwear and you got to kind of rinse and repeat, replace it. You start your day with it. Um, and so we figured if we can get consumers to start their day sustainably from the start, they're setting themselves up for success in making better decisions throughout the rest of their day that will permeate their larger lifestyle choices um, and start to move the needle and impact um, the, the larger industry narrative. So, yeah. Okay. I've got a ton of questions and they're like <laughs> all over the shop already. Um, but I love what you just said. One of our earlier guests was um, they it's similar, but um, for homeware, so bed sheets and linens, towels, etc. And we had a whole conversation. It was fantastic about how people kind of they forget about that or they overlook that. And I wanted to ask you about, you know, underwear, innerwear, as you call it, um, and how yeah, when you think of fast fashion, when you think of how to kind of combat consumption, overconsumption uh, of clothes, accessories, just things. You don't think of underwear and you don't think of innerwear. You don't think of undershirts. You don't think of bras. And I wanted to talk to you about um, what you found in terms of your customer discovery 
in talking to customers? Is it an easy shift to make? Is it like, oh my gosh, this is a light bulb moment? Or what kind of education do you have to do on the market? Or is it is it self-explanatory and you're like, look, this is just, it's a swap. It's a one for one. This is just better for you and the world. I, that's a great question. I will say that because of my experience previously, which was also in kind of the sheets, the sheets sector, um, mm-hmm. doing orders, sheets, et cetera, and bringing it to a mass market, um, which is typically not the, the fringe consumer who is leading the charge on new innovation um, in product mm-hmm. um, discovery. So what we learned there through tons of focus groups, through market saturation, through you know mass retailer feedback, people will tell you all day that they want to choose an eco-friendly product. They want to buy something that's better for the environment and better for the people that produce it. But at the end of the day, what motivates their choice and their purchase is cost and convenience. And so our thesis was, we can make a very sustainable product all day. We need to make it inexpensive and we need to, or accessible, I should say, and we need to make it convenient um, from both a cost perspective, but also from, you know, is it easy for me to get? And so that's really where we took the direct to consumer, um, you know, path in terms of uh, distribution, which was novel, you know, quote unquote, at the time, <laughs> there weren't a lot. I mean, there they were bubbling up um, at that point, but definitely different from what my background was, was mostly focused on retail uh, programs. And, um, and then the, the cost, we were taking on a lot of the cost for the customer upfront and um, making sure that we were investing in a fully certified product from the farm level. Uh, we are a certified organic company, actually. Um, and so from the farm level, you know, clean cotton that is certified organic to the global organic textile standard, audited by third parties, free from harmful toxins like pesticides and fertilizers. But then in the processing, there's no additives that are chemical, that are highly toxic, um, no carcinogens, no heavy metals, no PFAS, no VOCs, um, and no bleach or chlorine. And then all the way through to distribution. So our packaging is plastic free. Um, you know. We actually rely very heavily on renewable energy. We are 60% solar powered um, in our supply chain downstream, um, pre, pre-consumer, and then everything we can't control, like the distribution that UPS or USPS does, the gasoline in their trucks, we offset that with verified uh, programs, which you know we have a we have some feels around uh, carbon offsetting, but but that's kind of what we you know we have to have a tapestry of approaches here, um, and so. Sorry, getting back to your original question. Okay, so all yes. of that said, <laughs> educating consumers in discovery, all of that said, there's a lot of work that goes into creating this product. And it is very hard to communicate and package that. And we have found that at least at the beginning, when we started the company and launched it, we found that working off of emotion to our consumer and the value add to them first was the the key to giving them the light bulb moment. And most people really do have that light bulb moment. Okay, we lead with, yes, this is very good for the environment, but it's actually much better for your body. You shouldn't be exposed to formaldehyde in your underwear. Why is there formaldehyde in your underwear? Because it's an anti-wrinkling agent. That's why it's put there. It is a known carcinogen. It can cause cancer. I don't want to put that on the underwear I produce. Let's not do that. Um, and so a lot of our customers are waking up to this saying, oh my gosh, like I 
had no idea. There are all of these, you know, we've seen a lot in the news about PFAS and, you know, car the carcinogens and the chemicals associated with the off-gassing and leaching of, of clothing and, um, you know, microplastic, you name it. I mean, there are so many things that, you know, we've contributed to, I believe, um, educating the customer in opening their eyes, asking these questions around what is in my clothing. And it's, it's honestly, it's like in the most intimate parts of your body and you put this on every single day, you wash it, you wear it, you know, um, you should really replace your underwear getting to the second part of your question. Um, every six to 12 months, candidly, which a lot of people do not do. People do not replace their underwear, right? And so we we created the world's first intimates recycling program, um, which was kind of going back to our research originally around uh, circularity and this idea of designing for circularity and uh, recapturing value of post-consumer textiles. There's a huge amount Consumption has gone up so much in the past decades, and there's just so much more in circulation that we need to really think about that's going to end up in a landfill. With Intimate specifically, there is no second market for it. It's not going to, it's not going to the goodwill. It's not going to, you know, it shouldn't go on to a second person. You can't sell it. You definitely shouldn't sell it. Um, and it's just a giant um, uh, issue for textile waste that can off gas in when it gets to landfills, toxic chemicals, because it's primarily made from polyester at this juncture. And so we created the recycling program so that people can thoughtfully and responsibly dispose of their old undergarments, whether they're subset or not, um, and feel empowered to be replacing their underwear and kind of combating this idea of, okay, I'm over consuming. We wanted to make it um, you know, a feel good situation that allows somebody to not feel guilty about purchasing new underwear, right. But also having a solution for getting rid of their old underwear, um, which I feel like is the, it, that's the key, right. We have this slow fashion on one end of the spectrum, and then we have fast fashion on the other end of the spectrum, and we have to find something in the middle. And so that's our, that's our offering. And it has been incredible. The traction we've recycled over a million and a half garments to date, um, and it grows every month. Okay, so you start. When did you start the program, the recycling program? From day one, we launched with it. Okay, so in like okay, twenty seventeen. Yeah, twenty eighteen was when we. Twenty eighteen. Yeah. So speaking of like all of the things that and and you know consumers don't know this. Anybody who works in a business knows this, especially, you know, <laughs> a business that produces actual things, actual goods, um, all, all of the steps that are involved and all of the costs that are involved in producing things. How did you get to this point where you're able to scale and produce things in the way that you wanted to with the materials that you wanted to, um, but at scale? How did it start? Were you losing money to start with? How did you find the, the manufacturers that you wanted to, the partners in production? Like, how did you find this? And how did it start? A lot of our of our entrepreneur partners and, and folks that we talk to are like, look, I would love to start you know, a sustainable apparel company with recycled materials. I've done the calculation. It's I'm going to be losing money from day one. Like, how do I do this? So how did you start that? Uh, again, this is not like yesterday, 2017, 2018. How did you how did you figure out how to make that work as a business? 
Um, it's challenging. I would say, <laughs> I always say to any aspiring entrepreneur in general is to just start with what you know, because that's the lowest hanging fruit, right? If you are a marketing expert, put together a marketing strategy. If you are a content creator, start to think about what that looks like. If you are an operator, start building out your logistics. My background was mostly in product development. So I knew how to like make a garment. Um, I designed it with a technical designer because um, my design background is more of the conceptual design. Um, but it was, you know, my own build partnered with um, a technical designer locally. So we definitely were paying premium in New York City Garment District for that. Um, I had a Rolodex of contacts that I had built myself just from previous work um, and went out to factories that had a similar profile. And you really do have to kind of vet them. We had a formal vetting process. We have a code of conduct we go through. Again, leaning on certifications, especially if you aren't versed in the language necessarily um, or don't know this vendor, I would say certifications are a wonderful place to um, have kind of that third party verification that this vendor shares your values. Um, they're going to be able to deliver on the claims that you are upholding and are are really searching for as a business. Um, I would say also at the time, organic cotton was not as expensive as it is. Well, it's it's actually normalizing again, but it went through like a peak of um, volatility, let's say, over the past five years. Um, and so, you know, at the outset, it was definitely uh, a novel um, kind of uh, introduction, if you will, in, in the cotton landscape. Organic cotton only makes up about 2% of the market. Um, and so that, you know, that I think was a differentiator for us, but also showed the factory that we were interested in investing in it. Um, and we just partnered with them. I mean, we bootstrapped the company completely. And so our, and, and any product-based company, it's all working capital. You have to put into the inventory and hold that. And so we bought on minimums. We bought a very limited and, um, you know, focused assortment. I think um, we took from the D2C playbook of do one thing really well. Um, but we we kind of bucked the D2C playbook of like build the parachute as you're jumping out of the plane. Because with a product, if you go to market separately from tech, you know, they go to market with like an MVP and they improve and they iterate and iterate. And we did that somewhat, like we wanted feedback obviously, and we continue to iterate and we still do today, but you have less chances to really make a real impact on your customer. Right. And so we wanted it to be pretty great out of the gate. And so we just had a really focused assortment. We only had four SKUs. We were only in undies specifically. Um, and as we started to get traction there, um, um, you know, we, we got some really great press, uh, Vogue covered our launch story and all oh, that's sudden a big we, one. Yeah. Well, it also caused a little bit of an inventory issue for us because we sold yeah, out of it, about yeah. six months of inventory in six weeks, which was complicated. Wow. But fantastic. Yeah. I mean, what a great problem to have. I mean, I know that's a headache, anything like that. You're like, Oh, expletive, expletive. We did not budget for this, but what a great problem to have. It's true. And, you know, there, that was a, it was a, it was a problem. It was a good problem to have, but, you know, we took solace in the fact that we had those people's emails and then we could, you know, let them know when, when new product came in. And so that there was a silver lining there, certainly. 
COVID hit, which was incredible for us. Um, we three X'd overnight and wow. everyone wanted to stay at home and no one wanted an underwire in their bra anymore. And yeah. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> so I think there's a lot to say about timing in the market as well. Um, certainly, which is is it's fortunate. You know, I wouldn't say it's lucky, but it's definitely fortunate. So um, then about timing, since you have been in this since as you said, 2012, you've been in this and of course in the industry for much longer than that. What was the, do you feel like finally, I've got a bunch of questions about the launch, but do you feel like between the time that you were, you know, researching your, your master's thesis, working on this, becoming super interested, but not just interested, knowledgeable about what it would take. And I know five years later, four years later, whatever. uh, And when you launched, do you feel like that was like really great timing? Because as you said earlier, it would have been a little bit too early, but do you feel like that was a great timing or is it like, I wish I would have moved that up a little bit or actually we were a little bit early. It doesn't sound like you were a little bit early. I think we were right on time for the conversations we were having. We were female focused, which was completely novel at the time. I can't believe that, but per, uh, apparently every women's underwear company prior to us was run by a man, um, which is crazy. And just the conversation around women's health um, mm-hmm. and prioritizing health, uh, the conversation around sustainability also, mm-hmm. um, you know, with respect to understanding, because there is a, you know, I, I struggle with the term sustainability. We actually don't use it. Uh, but you have to, right? It's kind of the the one, it's the one word that really encompasses it all, but it's so complex. And what does sustainability mean to us? Um, and what issues are we solving for? Um, you know, we're also focused on financial sustainability. I mean, there's so many things. And so um, that, that I think we were well poised for. I do sometimes wish from like a market penetration standpoint or saturation and like uh land grabbing that we were a year earlier but mm-hmm. i think i think you're we we were on time for for what we were trying to do in the white space certainly um yeah and i will say that our recycling program is it, it was you know the first of its kind and i think really opened up the floodgates for a lot of apparel companies to start thinking about, um, you know, taking responsibility for the products that they're putting into the world. Um, and we built all that tech ourselves. Um, we did all the operations ourselves. I mean, we were getting recycling boxes to my apartment for years. Um, <laughs> insane. <laughs> so much, uh, which is basically waste management when you think about it. Um, and yeah, it was, uh, that, that I think really helped us because apparel, it's very difficult to build a moat in, in apparel. Um, you can't have a patent, you know, you are effectively part of this ephemeral machine that is predicated on trends and, and look and, and feel. Um, and I think, you know, we try to, uh, carve our, our niche out in that landscape by, uh, really owning that inner wear essentials um, perspective and just having a beautifully made product um, that people really love putting on every day. So, yeah. So you, I've, okay. I, I mean, we're entrepreneurs over at EPOP and, and B1. I've done this a couple of times, but only in the technology 
side of things. So that really, I was like nodding along when you're like, yes, in technology, you launch with an MVP and then you iterate on that really quickly and you go through your alpha testing and your beta testing and then you open up and waitlist, et cetera. You guys, and when I say guys, of course, I mean you ladies, you and your co-founder, you launch with a lot of things. You launched with a, like products. You launched with a recycling program. Like you guys, you launched with a lot of things right out the gate. That makes me, I'm, you know, nothing to do with your venture. And that makes me sweat over here thinking about your huge launch. Uh, that's no. like, that's a lot of things to go at the gate with. And that's fantastic. Like kudos to you. Um, and it's something that's, it's still going. Of course, everything, you know, when you have a, a small business or any business, you iterate things on things constantly, but something mm -hmm. that you went out the gate with five years ago from day one is still in existence. That's amazing. That's a lot of, you know, forethought you, you to really, it's obvious that you've been in the business and this was something that you knew really well to say, this is something that exists now that's, that's going to be a staple in terms of differentiating ourselves. And can you just for our, for our audience that maybe are not entrepreneurs or early entrepreneurs explain what a moat is? Oh, sure. It's basically a protective, uh, well, it's the physical moat of a castle, if you want to think about it that way. And you are the castle. Your business or your product is the castle. And um, um, if you're trying to carve out a white space in the market, uh, the best thing to do that with is a moat, um, because then people can't replicate it and your, your IP is protected. And so, um, and the reason why it's pretty impossible to do that in apparel is because there are no protections in apparel unless you have a patented garment, you know, like Spanx, for example, um, in our kind of similar vertical as a performance um, panty, um, you know, that, that's a proprietary textile and build. And so, yeah, that's, that's a protected, a moated garment, uh, but that is, it's pretty impossible to do. Um, candidly in apparel. And so what we focus on building and going back to what you were saying about launching with a lot of things out of the gate, um, you know, we, we launched with a very uh, focused and fully fledged customer experience, um, which I think a lot of people overlook, particularly in direct to consumer. They're really focused on acquisition and getting it in front of people and spending money saturating the market. Um, and then they kind of lose sight of the retention part. And we focused a lot on, okay, this is intimate apparel. We are creating an intimate experience. We want to have an intimate relationship with our customer. We want to know everything that she thinks about this product. We want to create a safe space in the internet, which is can be the most terrible and terrifying. Yeah, it's harder place. and harder to do. Exactly. And um, that was huge for us. I mean, we would get handwritten notes from our customers. We had a phone line. It was very novel, um, you know, speaking directly to the people who buy our products um, and really listening to that. I, I always say the first product that we launched post launch was designed by our customers because they were the ones that gave us the feedback. So, so that customer, that, that UX is kind of your mode. That is your differentiator. That's what makes you unique and different yes and the recycling program as well well and yeah and i mean a lot of i would say that's awesome okay so back to the you know before your launch you're thinking this needs to happen this needs to be a thing 
Mm-hmm. How did you, and I would love to hear your experience, but in general, any kind of wisdom, how do you pick a co-founder? Oh my goodness. Um, mm-hmm. Originally, I thought that I would have to do this myself. It didn't really even occur to me that I could have one. So that was eye-opening. Um, but I knew that I needed to hire or work with, quote unquote, um, people that were sm- as smart as me or way smarter. You know what I mean? I think that's kind of the 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 trite, but, you know, over over talked about advice. And yeah, my co-founder is brilliant. And we had already had um, really great track records working together on, uh, we, we launched a scholastic journal, um, in which she was an editor and I was the art director. Um, and so we had a really great partnership and we also had very similar work ethic values. I think that is actually the secret to the sauce is the work ethic values of, you know, when you are running a startup and we were joking about this before we started really getting into it, but entrepreneurship is a lot like parenthood. Um, (laughs) I started this company before I became a parent, but it is um, very much like having a baby and you kind of need to treat it that way, right? It it keeps you up all night. It cries all day. It grows out of its clothes (laughs) immediately. Um, And so you need to have a good co-parent. And that is what a good co-founder relationship is, is, okay, I'm putting out this fire. Can you handle this fire? Or, um, you know, let's, let's get into the groove of we're going to work 16 hour days for a month and a half straight to launch this part of the product. What have you, um, you need to need to make sure that like when you're down in the trenches, you have each other's backs. I totally agree. I have two co-founders now and with just within all of the startup communities that I'm, I'm in a part of, it's fun. I hear a lot of like, Oh my gosh, I'm in therapy to deal with my co-founder because <laughs> we're just not on the same page. And on the other hand, I hear, thank God I am have somebody to lean on in this because as you said, this is this is so hard. Like mm-hmm. entrepreneurship is so rewarding and so fulfilling and it's so hard. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's I hear both so often and I'm I think you're exactly right. Um I would echo that values around work what this means to the person, because if this means something in my life, totally different to what it means to it, to yours, that's let's, let's align there, at least have a conversation about it. And then um, what goals and milestones look like. And that doesn't necessarily mean like exit or acquisition or IPO, anything like, but what, what do we want this to be? And what are our milestones and our goals? Because again, if they're wildly misaligned or you don't have the conversation at all, that's like when you're in therapy to deal with your co-founder because it is like having a spouse. It's it's that intense. Um, it's very, so, okay, that's interesting. I would say even more than when you survey things like, okay, this is what I do well. This is what my experience is. And this is what you do well. And let's make sure we don't have any overlapping. Like even before, you know, the skill, the repartitioning of tasks, I think aligning on values, work ethic, goals, things like that. Um, is is way way more important because as you said you'll eventually you'll be hiring people too, um, right. so I think that's trumps everything. A hundred percent. I think it's it's less talked about than I would than I feel like um, it should be personally. But yeah, I think the goals thing is huge as well. Like, what does success look like? 
um, because you need to make sure that you're working towards the same things. For us, we've never really been focused on building a business to exit. And I think, especially when you're bootstrapped, but definitely if you're funded, I think that that's an important um, thing to align on because what success looks like to us is creating a sustainable business that is sustainable from a supply chain standpoint, but also financially sustainable, right? So, um, you know, we're, we're really focused on making the unit economics work, making the margins work, making the operations work, um, and building what we call the well-oiled machine. And, uh, that, that to us is what success is. It's not about the, the check size at exit, quote unquote. Yeah. <laughs> I sent when I first I had worked with both of my co-founders before we'd all worked together and still when we started this venture and I was uh, you know coming on board I sent them a, a one pager about what it is to work with me and this is my this is my MBTI score my Myers-Briggs and this is my Enneagram and all of this stuff these are my goals and this is what I want it to be etc so just to bust open that conversation like right from day one I think yeah. is, is super important. So then let's talk about today and in the future. So are you completely e-commerce direct to consumer or do you have any retail partners? We don't, well, I shouldn't say that. We are primarily D2C and that is what our team focuses on. We have a handful of wholesalers. We've worked with um, Nordstrom in the past. Um, mm -hmm. But our, our primary focus has been D2C just with the, I would say, volatility of the market, you know, working through COVID, um, having control over our own warehousing and our customer experience, our own data. Those things have always been really primary to us. Um, so I'm not saying that we wouldn't necessarily venture out. I think Omnichannel is is potentially the way of the future, as everyone keeps saying. Um, so we have we have sight lines there, but um, primarily we are direct to consumer currently. Okay, currently. And you talked about larger corporations and kind of the thing that was, one of the things that was pushing you out of how you were working in the fashion industry before. Over the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, have you seen any material evolution in terms of how larger corporations are, I don't, I don't want to say committed to, are um, making their practices or manufacturing more sustainable or environmentally conscious, at least in any way? We see, you know, like H&M having recycling programs. We see Zara doing things that have been, you know, there's a lot of greenwashing, obviously, and there's a lot of programs that have started like that, that have been immediately debunked or been like, this is crap. Have you seen, because you've been in this industry for a long time, have you seen any material change in how large corporations, not necessarily only fast fashion, but in general are tackling this issue or evolving at all? Definitely. Um, absolutely. And I think, you know, the H&Ms and the Zaras of the world um, that are really dabbling uh, in, you know, more sustainable fiber choices or more sustainable um, material innovation in general. It's all, and perhaps a lot of that is greenwashing or can be. Um, you know, we have our take on recycled poly as a business, uh, which we think is very fraught given that it mm -hmm. disrupts an already circular um, supply chain with recycled bottles. Um, and it takes that, it actually takes recycled bottles out of this circular supply chain. So, 
you know, that's an example of, of greenwashing, if you will, that we have a perspective on at Subset. Um, but I do think that because so many larger businesses are getting into the conversation, it's signaling a, a change, right? It's signaling that the um, the fringe smaller operators that kind of lead the um, weather vane in terms of material innovation and trends um, and the reports that, you know, WGSN put out every year, McKinsey, who have you, um, you know, it's signaling that there is a uh, demand for it. There's an interest for it. And the, the bigger thing that we've been really keeping our eyes on is that the B2B side of things is actually starting to catch up. The thing about material innovation is that it's very, it can be very expensive to scale. You know, you think about spider silk or leather made from pineapples or, you know, these post-consumer, um, uh, exciting, turning trash into treasure uh, moments um, within material innovation is something that we are very focused on. We keep our ears to the ground on that. Um, we, you know, our, our kind of approach to that is really designing for circularity where we've closed the gap on uh, cleaning up textile waste. We're trying to close the gap on our own product cycle. So um, not only designing a garment that is easily recaptured for textile recycling, but then our returns inventory is actually being recycled into fiber to fiber um, outcomes, which is a first and it's the first in our sector. Um, and eventually we'll be creating products from that outcome ourselves. So um, basically in most states, but definitely in New York, you can't resell an unpackaged intimate apparel garment. Mm -hmm. So any get back that's returned to us we've just been holding on to in our warehouse until we have a solution for mm -hmm. good use for that textile um and you know i think that that is probably far off for a lot of larger corporations but you'll see like madewell doing denim drives and trying to get you know people to give back their denim and incentivize them. You know, I think we've, we've been incentivizing our customers um, to recycle their old undies for years. And that has really worked in educating people about better consumptive and disposal practices. Um, but yeah, I think I think we're still a far ways off, but a lot, a lot of that has to do with like the larger corporations investing in these innovations that are, um, you know, at the cutting edge of, of the technology and materials um and and it, it will take them um and that we really believe you know rising tides raise all boats so mm -hmm. um, you know it's exciting that that eventually those things will become more scalable more mainstream and then all of us will get to participate um and bring better products to market for every eco-minded consumer all right that's okay that's pretty much answer that I was I was hoping to hear from your perspective. Yes, progress, much more progress needed. Yes, we'll get there if everyone participates, etc. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's a multi-pronged approach. Yeah. Multi, multi, so many prongs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the consumer voice is obviously super, super loud. Yeah. Um, okay. We've come to the rapid fire portion okay. of our <laughs> conversation. Oh, I'm so okay. <laughs> I'm so bad at rapid fire. <laughs> oh, uh, I mean, and this, these are, 
these questions are designed for the entrepreneurs who are listening. Some okay. of them, it's like to make them feel better and you'll see why. And some of it's like, oh, interesting. So number one, did you get to everything that you wanted to in 2023? We're in Q4 of 2023 now. So in January, when you're making your plans, did you get to everything that you wanted to get to in 2023? Yes. Wow. Amazing. Okay. What was your biggest challenge this year? Um, bringing entirely new categories to market. Ooh, for example, men's. Oh, okay. Nice. Uh, what was the most exciting thing to have happened this year? Uh, we rebranded because of the men's collection. Oh, nice. It's also the most challenging to be honest, yes, but it was very, yes. I would say exciting over challenging for sure. Rebranded just for everyone to hear, rebranded from and to? We were originally known as Nikki and now mm -hmm. we are subset. Right. Cool. Um, okay. Three questions. Your biggest, so this is in the life of the business, your biggest success to date? Our recycling program traction. Awesome. Your biggest failure to date? Launching a warehouse in the UK. <laughs> Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, we we uh, we ended up doing um, just international shipping from our existing warehouse with a better platform. But we did we made the mistake of splitting inventory um, overseas, which I do not recommend anyone do. Yeah, good to know. And that was going to be my offline question for you is do you ship internationally? Because I'm headed to the States in a couple of weeks and I was going to just send everything to my mom's house, but you do ship internationally. Awesome. Okay. We do. Um, okay. Uh, most important lesson you've learned to date. Oh man. See, this is why I'm bad at that. <laughs> it's a big That's question. It's a really big question. The most important Hire slow, fire fast. Ooh, oh, that's a that's a good one. That's a good one. Okay. If you could get 85%, it's a very, it's a very specific number, but 85% of the world to adopt a single behavior, what would that be? Oh my God. Um be nice to your neighbors. Oh, that's a good one too. That's we always, I worked in retail forever and we had a sign that was said like, you know, it was basically the, the gist was be, be kind, you know, yeah. be kind to people. Just and I think nice. it, well, in business, I think that that is a really undervalued quality. People forget that, you know, working with, working with people leaves a stamp, you know, you have to be, you have to be nice. You got to be kind. And give us a plug. Where can we find you? on uh, online on socials where can we find you across the, the internet you can find us at wheresubset.com that's w-e-a-r-s-u-b-s-e-t.com awesome kayla thank you so much i really like this conversation a lot of nuggets in there for the entrepreneurs and aspiring entrepreneurs out there thank you very very much we hope to see you on b1 soon and everybody else will see you on b1 uh shortly Thank you so much, Amber. Lovely chatting with you. Appreciate you having me.